This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. In the words of the French artist Henri Matisse, an artist is an explorer. Whether that exploration begins with a formal art education in the classroom, spontaneous sketching in a travel journal, experimenting in your studio, or by merely noticing the flora and fauna around you, many art quilters are known to be deeply moved by nature. Today, we'll be exploring that link between the art we create and the environment in which we live and work with our artist-in-residence, Sue King. Welcome to the Quilting Arts Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the world of contemporary art quilting. I'm Susan Brubaker-Knapp, and I'm here with my co-host, Vivica Hansen-Denegri. So good to be with you again, Susan. It is. It is. It's awfully hot and humid here, though. I am kind of eager for uh, summer to go away and bring in fall. Well, we're recording at the end of August, and I have to say, I'm right there with you. We went through a really sort of not-so-fun weekend with Hurricane Henri threatening us, I should say, last weekend. And uh, very fortunately, where I am in Connecticut, we did not get much of an effect from the hurricane at all. But, you know, it brought with it a lot of rain, a lot of humidity, and we're still, like, sweating it out. Yeah. And, you know, I love to get out and walk in the morning. And a lot of the art that I make, the art quilts that I make, are based on what I see around me when I'm out taking my walks. And so I'm kind of annoyed that the humidity sometimes is just overbearing here in North Carolina. So I I really welcome the fall so that I can get out and take more pictures and be inspired by my beautiful surroundings. I'm with you. And I love the colors of fall too. You know, when I think about some of my favorite colors, it's those deep oranges and golds and, you know, the backdrop of the brown leaves sometimes and the green coming through the forest. I love the colors of fall. And I, you know, when I think back of hurricanes in the past, I think it was Hurricane Irene when it came through New England. It came through at about the same time. It was the end of August when that one hit us. And the hurricane picked up so much salt water when it was coming through. I live a couple of miles from the coast, but it picked up so much salt water and it dropped it over my entire town. I swear it was the strangest thing. And it basically made it so our fall had no color whatsoever. It killed all the leaves and there was no gold. There was no red. We had to go in like 10 miles before we actually saw a maple tree that turned color. It was very, very strange. So I have to say, I'm so glad that didn't happen this time and that we're actually going to have a beautiful fall. Yeah. And your falls are spectacular in New England and in Western North Carolina too. We need to get over that way a little bit closer to Asheville where the color is really great in the fall here. Mm. So tell me about the quilts that you've been making, because I've seen some of them on Instagram, and I know that they're reflections of nature, and that sort of is what we're talking about in our podcast today. But I'd love to hear your perspective on what you're making. So I'm working on all things that are native to North Carolina. 
I'm focusing in on those things. So we have a wonderful botanical garden near us here in Chapel Hill, and I've spent some time there. They have great natural walking walking trails, um, and then they have some formal gardens and herb gardens, and they have a wonderful selection of carnivorous plants. And so I've been doing a lot of research on them because a lot of them are native to North Carolina. The Venus flytrap is only found in a 75 mile hour or 75 mile radius of Wilmington, North Carolina, which is on the coast. And so it's in, I think, 14, I can't remember, 12 or 14 counties in North Carolina and one county in South Carolina. And it's heavily poached. People have been digging up the plants and selling them for a long time. But yeah, it's super cool that it's it's a native plant and it's North Carolina's official carnivorous plant. I didn't know there were such things as official carnivorous plants. Well, probably most states don't have them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I wonder if Connecticut has one. Well, um, it's really interesting, isn't it, to to look at those native plants and native flowers. I know it, my sister's a, a naturalist as well, and she loves planting native plants in her garden. And she's actually trying to get rid of most of the grass in her garden and in mm. her lawn as well, because she knows the importance of bees and uh, birds and and the small animals that actually have to have those native plants. And I know that our artist in residence is also very, very interested in keeping natural areas natural. So it's going mm. to be sort of an interesting conversation to bring that in. But I love the thought of having like a whole bunch of pieces of art that reflect what is around you. I really love digging into my subject matter and learning a lot about it. And I like to use my pieces to kind of educate people about the subject matter or to maybe push my agenda a little bit, whether that's because I'm doing like milk. I did a milkweed piece with a, I guess it's a swamp milkweed leaf beetle or something like that on it, but to, to educate people about the importance of planting native plants. And I know our guest has, has done several pieces on that with that specific message. So Susan, I'm looking forward to seeing some of those pieces and hope you send me an image that we can post on our, our show notes. And let's take a quick break and we'll bring in our artist in residence, Sue King. Let me introduce you to today's artist in residence, Sue King. Sue is an avid outdoorist with a lifelong passion for camping, hiking, and canoeing. She was just four years old when her parents took her to visit her very first national park, an experience that changed her forever and started a lifelong wanderlust. As a recently retired social worker and counselor, Sue is fascinated with the social work concept of systems theory, which explores the relationship between people and nature. Since 2012, She's participated in many residencies at national parks, national monuments, and at state parks. Sue is an amazing artist who I was so happy to meet last year in person at our Quilting Arts TV taping. You're sure to recognize her work not only from TV, but also as the cover artist for our most recent issue of Quilting Arts Magazine, and that's the fall issue 2021. We're so happy to welcome you to the podcast, Sue. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's really an honor to be here. I just love the podcast and I listen to it in the studio when I'm working. So thank oh, you. 
That's great. Well, my very first question for you is, what do you remember about your visit at age four to Great Smoky Mountains National Park? And why do you think you were so impressed by that experience? What, why did it change you? Well, a couple of things. There's two things I remember because four-year-olds don't have the greatest memories, but I do remember sitting on a large rock and overlooking the mountains and looking at the trees with my dad kind of holding my hand so I didn't slide off of that rock. (laughs) And the other thing is seeing bears for the first time. And at four year old, four years of age, you really can't discern the difference between a lot of animals. To me, they just like like black dogs in the ditch. But I was told later on they were bears. So it did leave a, a quite a, a lengthy impression, a lifelong impression on my work and my personality. You know, I think how lucky that you were to have parents who would take you on trips like that and and expose you to nature. Because so many times, you know, I know with my own kids, I was a little bit trepidatious when my husband wanted to take our newborn camping. That that wasn't something that I was really comfortable with. But so many times, you know, we we separate our our children from nature because we're afraid. And, you know, there's no reason to be afraid of getting dirty or afraid of sleeping on the ground or thinking you're going to catch cold from being outside. But there is a true reason to expose children, especially to the outdoors, because they get that love for it and that just that need to be outdoors and outside, you know, in the rain. It's, it's fabulous. So, you know, you seem to have that from a very early age. That's quite a gift. Well, it's a gift that you want to pass on to the next generation because I truly believe that those that love the outdoors are the ones that are going to preserve it and conserve it and take care of it. And I've already started that. I have two grandchildren and I took my five-year-old camping last year for his first camp trip and he just loved it. And children get a lot for for their mental health from being in the outdoors, the sense of uh, peace, um, turning off all their electronics and really... uh, like you said, getting dirty. There's actually a scientific reason why we should get our children dirty. It helps their immune system. So um, I just think it's a wonderful thing that we should all be doing right now. I have kind of a funny story about I wanted very much to get my kids outside and my oldest was not very adventuresome as a as a young, as a kid. And one time we, I was outside working and Lee was up in, she was started climbing a tree and I was like, oh, that's really awesome, Lee. That's great. Look at you. And it really encouraging her. And then the branch cracked and she fell out of the tree and broke both her wrists oh my and had to have seven stitches under her eye. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> but baby, um, I also, she, she really loved some nature camps. When we go to the beach, when she was a kid, they had a great camp at Baldhead Island Conservancy where she got to dissect squid and write with squid ink and hunt for all different kinds of things with the casting nets in the ocean. And it really did change her. She has a deep love and deep appreciation for marine biology. And, you know, that that made a big difference in her life. Well, that is a great immersion because I know a lot of parents themselves, they are frightened of spiders or snakes and they kind of allow their children to almost absorb that fear. Whereas if you have them with scientists who have no fear, they learn that there's really little to be afraid of, or they learn respect for those mm-hmm. animals and know how to you know, act around them. That healthy respect is, is sort of important. I did have a child who wanted to be a mycologist when he was 
oh, I'd say six months old and started eating mushrooms. Um, (laughs) So we've all had, you know, we've all had those opportunities, you know, with our kids and, and getting them out in nature. But I, I do think the cool thing is that, you know, they get their hands on it and their hands dirty with it. And then, you know, they, they sort of absorb it, as you said, Sue. And I, you know, looking at your artwork, you can just tell how much you love nature. So tell us a little bit, if you could, how you got involved with using nature sort of as that creative muse, because so many of your pieces just just ooze the natural world and the outside world. Well, not long after that first trip to Smoky Mountains, my dad decided he wanted to go camping, and he built a homemade camper. And from then on, we camped almost every weekend. Um, And there was, I guess, a family value in our family that you weren't allowed to say that you were bored. Because if you were bored, the response was, I'll find something for you to do. And it wasn't going to be anything you wanted to do. So even when we were camping, we were, you know, it was our responsibility to entertain ourselves. And that was through nature crafts, collecting acorns, making leaf prints, um, carving twigs, learning how to build a fire. All of those things were things that I absorbed and, again, loved deeply. And I guess that was a stepping off point. You know, as I got older, I got married, had children, went back to work, and all those things were kind of on hold till my kids went to college and I graduated from college. And then it was like a whole renaissance of creativity, learning new strategies and new concepts that weren't even available. That was when art quilts had been around and it was I. I got my first issue of Quilting Arts Magazine and learned what that was. And the the two have just been a marriage ever since, creativity and nature, which kind of goes back to my parents. My dad was interested in nature and my mother was a great knitter. So those two things have been kind of married together and expressed in, throughout my childhood and now my adult years. So when you're outdoors, are you actively working on your artwork or are you absorbing, you know, the energy and the ambiance of the location, and then going back to your studio and work? I would say generally that is correct. I am absorbing the environment just to be quiet and listen and look at things. And I often use photographs as reference images for when I get back. But in addition, I may be collecting things when I'm on the trail, bringing home leaves that are fascinating or, you know, other little bits of rocks or acorns or whatever that I might want to have in the studio to work with. But I would say 90% of what I do is back in the studio. And also, I find that just walking and hiking in nature every day, and I try and do it every day religiously about three miles, gives me time to think. And that's when the creative juices can kind of flow. And that's kind of the engine that drives my work. I have to have a combination of between working in the studio and uh, relaxing my mind enough to be creative out in the woods. And then it's kind of like just like a piston engine that goes up and down. I, I have to say I've never had a drought of ideas. I've never had a time when I couldn't think about what to do. It's the opposite about what to do next and how to stay focused because of that, I believe. I can imagine that you've got a studio full of natural things. I'm looking around my studio right now. I have driftwood. I have bird's nests, dried plants, feathers, and I'm, I'm just looking in one direction. What do you see in your studio that gives you that kind of inspiration or what do you bring back from nature to your studio, Sue? Well, right now I have rocks and I have a lot of dried materials that I used um, 
as models. I took photographs of them and made them into silk screens. And I also, where we live, we have rhododendron trees, which grow in all kind of crooked, really organic shapes. And I love that. So when I find a branch laying on the ground, I never would pull one off of a tree, but if I find one laying on the ground, I'll bring that home. And I have quite a collection of those that I can go through and pick out when I want to make something. I have quite a few leaves drying or pressing in phone books that I use for various printing process. And then you said in my studio, I actually have this stuff all over my house. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. Do you only work in your studio? I work in other places Uh, too. Yes, it gets uh, quite expansive. I sometimes have had it spread out all over my house. My upstairs is where I store all my pieces. And then I'll sometimes work on the dining room table just to have a clean place that won't have any ink or, or stain or dye on it. I call it studio creep. My, yes. you know, I, I take projects with me sometimes and, and like in the mornings, I don't want to work um, necessarily in my office, which is also my studio. So I'll bring it into the kitchen table and, you know, it ends up getting peanut butter on it, but it's a, you know, design opportunity. So the other thing is I do like to embroider in the living room while I'm watching television. So that kind of, I get threads and needles all over the house as well. <laughs> yeah. Just don't stick them in the couch because ask me how I know. I found a needle or two in a not too good place. But you know, you know, when we were at Quilting Arts TV and you were demonstrating serigraphy, which is a screen printing process, you were so methodical about how you did everything. I was very impressed with your organization. So tell me about how you organize and approach a piece of work, because I'm thinking specifically actually about a screen printing process where you were taking a screen and going along a, it was a deconstructed screen printing process that you were doing and you were screening on a long piece of fabric, but you got so much print, or I should say so many prints um, from this one screen. What do you do with all of that? You seem so organized to make all of these different prints, but then what? Well, the organization comes from being a social worker and had to develop treatment plans for people that have to be very specific and be in order. So it it teaches you how to think in a step-by-step process. And what I'm trying to achieve with my pieces is a sense of depth. So you have to think backwards to what is the first thing that needs to go onto your palette or onto your fabric and work backwards from that. So if you're not organized, it's not going to um, maybe get the effect that you hope to get. Sometimes I'm working on a specific piece. Other times they're just experimental. I have a whole tub of fabric that has been silk screened with different images that I can pull out and use kind of like as a depository and maybe fish out a piece that I want to work on. Sometimes I sit in there two or three years before I have the exact thing that I know that I want to do with it. That's just fermentation. Yes. <laughs> Gestation, I call that. Gestation. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm, I'm excited, actually, because we do have an article in the fall issue of Quilting Arts Magazine that is about the serigraphy process. And when I was watching you demonstrate this on Quilting Arts TV, my, my heart started pounding a little bit faster and I could just sort of feel it all happening in there. And then I came home and I immediately went online and bought the kit because <laughs> I knew I needed the kit to get started. That would that would certainly help me because it does come with a special lamp and everything. But I'm curious about, you know, you do so many different things. You do all sorts of different kinds of surface design. What What is your go-to um, way to start a quilt? Do you start with, uh, you know, how do you begin 
your process say when you are starting a quilt? Well, I think it all kind of originates from what your idea is, what you, what your topic or what your subject matter is. And I try and work in a series so that I want them to be somewhat related, similar to what Susan was explaining. So then I figure out how I want to explore and express that. And you're talking, I, I think it's a magical process, really. Any of the surface design, right now I'm learning how. I just bought a big printing press and I'm learning how to pr do prints on paper and on fabric that can be embellished. But I think the magic is best described as when people were using dark rooms and developing their own film. And when they pulled that piece up out of the chemicals to see what was there, you never really knew what was going to be there. And it's just a, a deep sense of awe that I get when I see what comes up. And then I want to do more of it and explore how it can work and what can I add to it. So I think it kind of generates itself as I go along through this sense of experimentation and happy accidents that I hadn't planned but come up. And then once I see what happened, then I can try and make it happen on purpose the next time. If you're lucky. I, actually, you probably can do it. You can probably replicate it. I'm sort of like, oh, what did I do? do you, you know, because I don't keep the best notes always for that replication? Well, it just takes a lot of experimentation and repetition to get it to come out. Um, not everything. Actually, the first time I made those, it was a big mistake. When I first printed those out, I could barely see them. It's like, what the heck? Now I have to print it all over again. And so I decided I'm just going to print on top of it. Maybe I won't notice that. And when I did that, I could see the depth starting. And so instead of having it happen by accident, I figured out a way to make it happen on purpose. And that was using really dilute um, dyes. Well, they're lovely. And I, I really can't wait to start doing it. I've got my screen, I've got my lamp, got my chemicals, <laughs> got a week off coming up. <laughs> well, you'll just have time to play. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, hey, one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to you and really wanted to talk to you about this topic with nature is because you have been an artist in residence at so many different parks and locations. And I would love to have you talk a little bit about how you, first of all, found those opportunities and how you actually were able to work those into your art life. Oh, I'll be happy to do that. That has been a highlight of my life, I would say, actually. I don't know how I, in fact, I think the original idea came from an article in Quilting Arts Magazine many years ago. Somebody had written a little article about how to do it. I, it had never entered my mind that that was anything you could even do. <laughs> and one thing I guess is I'm kind of brave and I really don't care what people think a lot of the times. And I've come to realize that if you want to have something, you have to do it, whether you get selected or not. If you don't, like if you don't buy a lottery ticket, you're not going to win the lottery. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. So I applied for a residency at Mesa Verde National Park, my first one, a great big park. And not only did I get it, they told me that I had the best application that they had. And so I was one of their very first picks. And so from that, I learned a lot about how to do it. And I'm very, would you like me to share some of the tips and steps that people can do to uh, pursue that? Yes, yeah. absolutely. 
Okay, so the first thing, and this is a given for whatever artistic pursuit you want to have that requires somebody selecting you, and that is real basic things that people don't think of. But it's no point implying if you don't have this stuff already done. First of all, you have to have a good body of work and you have to have it photographed professionally because they want to see your work. That's part of your submission. If you don't have that, don't bother to apply. So make sure you have a nice body of work and that you've had it professionally photographed and that you actually have a website. All of these applications request your website. Um, I'm not sure how much they peruse them. It may differ, but it gives you a sense of being an authentic artist. If you don't have one, they're curious about why you don't have one. It's just a requirement that you have a website. And it doesn't have to be ornate or anything. There's a lot of build-your-own ones. But get a website somehow. And then you have to have a resume. So if you've never done one of these before and you've never done anything like it, you might want to get your feet wet with you know, giving presentations or doing something that would allow you to put it on an art resume. So you need to have all those ready to go. And all these applications are online now, so they need to be in a format that could be submitted online. The days of paper and pencil are done. How you find out about them is research, which is one of my favorite things to do. But there's a really handy website if you want to do national parks. Um, it's nps.gov and then artist residence. And it has an interactive map. With um, There's about 50 national parks currently, and they keep it about 50 every year that have artist residencies of various descriptions. And you can click on that interactive map and generally it takes you right to the link about the artist residency program. And the first thing I would do is I try to go to places I really want to go to. It's not like a charm bracelet where I'm just trying to do as many as <laughs> I can do. I want to go places that really interest me. There's something about that place that really holds some interest for me. So I, I select a few of those. And the first thing I would do is go in and read it in depth, read the entire application, read about where you stay. Many of them have previous artists, not only their descriptions of what they did, but also their artwork. Go research numerous sites and see what other people have done. So that's the first thing. Also, you can just do basic research. Almost all public lands of some description offer artist residencies. There's a few state parks. There's BLM land. There's private foundations, conservation foundations. And you just start plugging in artists and residencies in the states or whatever. And I've spent hours doing that just to see what pops up. Once you have that done, then I would go back and reread, especially the application. So you're going to, and, and the biggest tip I have for filling out any of these kinds of applications is you must do it exactly like they say. If they tell you you're allowed to submit two pages of a resume and your resume is 10 pages long like mine, you better submit two pages or they're going to toss it out. Nobody wants to read a 10-page resume when they ask you for two. If they tell you you have 250 words to describe whatever it is, you've got 250 words. Don't make it three. And don't try and submit any extra things like magazine articles or anything. Again, another reason for it to be tossed out. So follow the directions to the letter. And then in addition to those basics, you know, they'll have you fill out your name and address and all of those things. But Part of almost every process is writing essays, and they usually ask four to five questions that are pretty much the same no matter what residency you want to apply for, and that is why you want to do it, what it will mean to you, what project will you do while you're there, what outreach will you, or presentation will you do to the public who visits that national park? Because this is a big draw for the parks. They want to bring people in, and having things for them to see or do 
is one of those ways. And then they want to make sure their message of the importance of the national parks and conservation lives on after your residency, which is why I'm thrilled to be doing this podcast, why I'm thrilled to be in the magazine, because it carries that a message forward to other people long after I was there. The other thing I would say is when you're writing those essays, again, research is the key. Why? What project are you going to do and why? You won't know unless you find out what is going on in that park. And almost everyone of those parks has their mission statement and areas of interest. And if you're smart, you will tailor your essays and your projects towards whatever they see is as important. Like Mesa Verde is a national world heritage site because of the uh, the, uh, ancestral Pueblo and peoples and the use of, you know, textiles in the early peoples. So that's what I tailored my project around and it made it really important for the park and it fitted right in with their mission. So it sounds to me like you have a very, very specific and business-like approach to to learning about um, the location and to submitting your art or your presentation, et cetera, you know, and, and your background probably helped an awful lot with that. Well, here's one thing. I think artists get a reputation of being, you know, very artist, artsy and very, you know, Temperamental or divas? Temperamental, difficult to work with, you know, not remembering things. And that doesn't go over so well when you're trying to work with people who maybe the other side of their brain works better than mine does. I mean, I, I have all of those things that I just described. But when I have to work with people that are running a business, I want to make sure that I'm giving them what they need when they need it. And I not only feel that when I'm in the parks, am I representing my own work? I'm representing artists everywhere. And I want to make sure I have a good representation of artists. I follow all the rules. I ask for, you know, there's a tremendous amount of things you can do in the national parks if you just ask. But it's very bureaucratic. So it's very important that you follow the rules and ask to do things there. Do you have a favorite residency that you've done so far or have you do you have a couple of really great experiences that you can share with us? Well, I've got to say Mesa Verde is well always live in my heart as my favorite one for several reasons. One, it was the first one and I w- it was very complimentary to be accepted there and plus I've always loved that area. We went there when I was in 10th grade and I loved it so much I came home and wrote a 10-page research paper for high school. <laughs> And I would say the experiences I had there were amazing. That is one. I actually had to take a test about how to behave and the safety issues and preserving all the artifacts and the grounds even there. Yeah, because that's a place where you could be in danger if you don't do the right thing. You could fall off a cliff and, you know, they have special bacteria mats on the soil that you don't want to destroy. They're hundreds of years old. Hmm. All you need to do is walk on them or, you know, not follow the rules and they're destroyed. But. On the other side of that is you can apply there for a backcountry permit to go into those ancestral ruins by yourself. I was given the keys and I was allowed to go in there before they open and after they open. And to go back into the backcountry, open up the gate, drive in the backcountry, hike down and go inside those ruins when all you can hear is the wind and the raven's wings flapping in the air and knowing that that's what they heard 700 years ago, probably in addition to kids yelling and, you know, people, you know, doing their work and building things. It kind of gives you a tingle up your spine. It's doing it to me right now. Just the, just the very thought of it. I would also say 
you know, some everybody wants to go the big ones. Everybody wants to go to Yellowstone or Grand Canyon. Those are very, very hard to get into. And sometimes you don't get the personal experience you would like to have. But if you go to some of the national monuments that are less visited, first of all, they're often in remote locations. And the staff that works there are just thrilled to have you there because you're somebody who knows something <laughs> different than, and they don't see you every day. So you're kind of entertainment for them. And they really enjoy having you there. And if you just ask, they will offer you up things. So in that one, they have the Samuel Cook Native American Artifact Museum, a small but beautiful, highly important museum of Native American artifacts from the panhandle of Nebraska and South Dakota that were are related to some very famous Native Americans. And they took me in the back room and our, a famous PhD archaeologist was coming in and they said, would you like to go in the back? And would you, they pulled out the drawers and I got to see things that no one else got to see. Mm. Um, I saw a robe painted about the battle of greasy grass, which we all know as the battle of the little bighorn. Now, how many people get to see one of those? Mm. So that was pretty special. A petrified forest. They said, if you'd like to go off the architect or with the archaeologist, or you would like to drive with one of the biologists to do a field study, you know, all you have to do is ask and many, many opportunities open up for those willing to take a risk. Hearing you talk about this also makes me think about people who maybe don't have time to go for two weeks or can't travel or whatever, that I wonder if you could approach your small town or a local you know, a place near you, a farm or something like that, and just say, hey, could I be your artist in residence for two weeks? Well, odd that you would mention that. I've done that as well. I did that at a local Ark of Appalachia, you know, about maybe 75 miles from me that had beautiful, you know, hiking trails. And they let me stay there with another artist for a week and do just that. The other thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, um, COVID has kind of interceded like in all bits of life with also these artist residencies. So last year there were new, no artist residencies going on mm. because they didn't want people staying in buildings and, you know, contracting COVID and there wasn't the staff there. So anybody that was selected to go last year didn't get to go. And now they're going in 2021, which has kind of backed up all the log for artist residencies. So now they're opening up and applying for next year and, and also into 2023. But I have started up this it's not my idea, but I'm starting to do it. This notion of a self-directed artist residency. So what is an artist residency? It's immersing yourself into a new environment. It's, uh, it's challenging your creativity. It's giving you a space to do new work and explore new concepts. Um, and you can do those on your own. I mean, there's some cachet about being attached to a national park or whatever, and you do get free housing, but you could self-fund your own, which I'm getting ready to do in Maine next month. I'm going to go up with another artist and work collaboratively on, on a project related to the Maine coast with the idea that we will come up with enough new work and some collaborative work to have an exhibition. And our plan is to you know, then market that exhibition to different galleries in several states. Wow, what a fun partnership. That's really cool. Yes, I'm very excited. I've always wanted to do something collaboratively. I'm going with another textile artist who has different work, but we both have similar upbringings growing up on farms and growing up in nature and camping and so forth. So we have a lot in common, but we also have different art practices. And I real we're talking about this notion of liminality, which is where two things kind of meet. So there's liminality between the ocean 
in the land, so the rocks and the water, but there also will be liminal space between our practices. So what will happen when we start to work together? I don't know. That's the exciting part about it. I don't know what the resultant work will be, but it's going to be fascinating, whatever it is. I know that. Well, I just think it's amazing, Sue, that you know, you actually are doing what you had mentioned in the beginning of our conversation. And I tried to write it down. I have the wrong words down, but it was sort of something like, if you don't try, you're not going to get anywhere. That's true. So what you're talking about is, you know, you might not have that opportunity, you know, built in and the, and the actually specific opportunity for that artist residency this year, but why not make your own? Exactly. You have to, I mean, that's a creative thing. You know, we tend to think in boxes, like the, here's what an artist's residency is, and it's in this nice little contained box. But who says it has to be in that box? It could be something else. And, you know, and maybe this is a positive of COVID. Maybe none of us would ever have come up with this idea unless COVID was here. Or also, if you've tried to get in a bunch of parks, and don't say, well, I can't do it. Make your own. Right. Still and valid. start there? Yes. Why not start there? Yeah. I, I have an artist residency going on. It's in my, in my own backyard. There you go. <laughs> but why not? Why not? Because, you know, like I look out in my backyard, I see all the birds and stuff. So I start, you know, making my bird quilts and I look in the backyard and I see all sorts of plants and I think, how come I'm not dying with them? And I need to start doing that. You know, you really don't have to go far if you don't want to, or you can go far. Correct. In the end, it kind of comes down to making a goal. And setting out the steps it's going to take you to get to that goal and, and holding yourself accountable and actually doing it. What's funny is in one of my previous jobs before I went back to school to be a social worker, I was called into the boss's office because on my evaluation, I didn't put any goals down. And I told her, I don't need any goals. You know, I already graduated from school. You know, I'm just living my life. And she was not happy with that response. She sent me to a class on how to set goals and she made me pay for it. Well, since I paid for it, I kind of paid attention. And ever <laughs> since then, those goals have got me so far. And the whole thing about you don't have to pay for it, it's breaking a great big goal down into teeny tiny little steps, which are doable, which was what I've tried to explain. You could do all these little bitty steps to kind of move you forward. It's, it's like anything else. You want to have an exhibition? Don't wait for people to knock on your door and ask if you have one. I just mail out things to random galleries, and I usually have about a 50% acceptance rate. It's getting over this fear that I'm not good enough and people won't like me. Hmm. Yeah, there's always a lot more opportunities out there than you imagine there are until you start asking. That's correct. You got to make sometimes your own luck. It's not really luck. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you think, where do you want to go next? And what is your dream residency? I, I know you're going to Maine and that sounds fabulous, but do you have plans further out than that? There's one that I really want to do. And the bigger that these get, the more competition. So that's one thing you do face because it's been pretty easy for me. So so far, but as you get more up the ladder, they get tougher. I would love my favorite one I want to do, and I've already been rejected once. You don't get anywhere without rejection either. <laughs> is U Cross? It's a foundation in a small town of U Cross, Wyoming. It has 25 people that live there, but they have a world-renowned artist residency, and a lot of people travel there from New York City. They're stage, you know, they're writing music, they're writing poetry, they're writing many of the. Um, 
novelists that have been successful in the last few years have had residencies there. And those are different kind of residencies where you're interact. You have your own studio, but you're also doing a lot of interaction with the other artists. Again, oh, this so there's like cross pollination. Exactly. You eat dinner together, and I think a lot of them hike and do things together. But I would love to get in there. Um, so I'm working on a new body of work. I hope might get me there. So what what do you think you? How would it change your work if you were cross pollinated with artists and theater people and musicians? Well, I can't really say. It's kind of like what I was saying. <laughs> you can't really see the end. You just like build it and they will come. You know what's going to have an effect on you. If you mm-hmm. open yourself up, if you stay in your little studio and never come out of it. But the minute artists I've found start talking about their work, the, you know, it's just ideas flow back and forth and you get a little nugget of an idea and you can build upon that. So I don't really know. I know that my work is changing with the, uh, the hopes of getting in there. I'm trying to come up with something unusual um, and that's what I've been working on right now. That's where I, one reason I got the printing press. And I'm trying to use trash that I pick up in the national parks and make them into prints. Well, I was really struck when I looked at your website at how much your style has changed over time. The work that you did, for example, at Mesa Verde, now the things that you're doing are like totally different techniques, styles. The look of them is very, very different. Do you did you do that on purpose, or was it just a natural evolution? And kind of where do you see yourself going? Well, it's a natural evolution because I also found out I'm a person that gets bored fairly easily, and I will go into something really in depth. I mean, dive deep into it and work hard at it for two or three years, and then I'm kind of done with it. I'm bored with it, and if I don't move on, I think the pieces just get less and less impactful. So, I. Uh, one of my own personal values is adult growth and development. I think we need to grow and learn our whole life if we want to have meaning in our life. So I'm always learning new things. And I, again, I've got to say learning how to do this printing process has just lit my fire. And how can I marry that with fabrics and textiles? And I'm at the verge of changing my thing from textile artist to textile artist and printer. You know, that opens up a whole new world and a whole new place to go with your work. And I find it really exciting. I've always kind of thought it was odd that a lot of time times artists get counseled to find your voice and then kind of stay in your lane, right? So you have a look, you establish um, a style, and then you're kind of expected as a mature artist to stay in that realm. And that seems really small-minded to me. Well, I'm in a group with other artists, and there's only one other textile artist. Two of them are art professionals, I would say they have academic. And they said to me, whatever you're working in, you will find your own style. I mean, people will know what your work, whether it's print work or Mm. whether it's textiles or sculptures or whatever. So I truly believe that my style will develop. And I think it already is from this. When people see that, they will know it's yours. And I'm not talking about just making 20 pieces of all different kinds of things, but working in a series. You know, I think about I think about how enthusiastic you are and what a gift, what a gift that you can bring to an artist in residency, um, which is the enthusiasm, not just for nature and the joy of being outside, but your enthusiasm for art and adult learning and growing as an artist, I think is amazing. It's really, really, um, it's infectious. It's actually quite infectious. (laughs) And I'm thinking about, oh, this, this would be a really lovely second chapter. 
going on here. <laughs> You're not the first person to say that. I've had two people that have been artists for a long time, but have just let it lay there and haven't done a thing come to me and say, you kind of lit my fire. I'm back in the studio working now. And boy, is this fun. Thank you. So, I mean, that's my social work and counseling, you know, adult growth and development. That's what I did for 20 years. And I take my own advice. <laughs> Which is, which is important to take that advice. So I have, I have one last question about artist in residencies. And that is, I know I can tell what you're getting out of it. You know, you get so much out of this, whether it's inspiration or, you know, an, an opportunity to travel and to be immersed in such, you know, in the beauty. But what do you give back to the organization where you stay when you're an artist in residence? Well, one of the things that you're absolutely expected to do is give presentations. And, and again, I have no fear about that, but a lot of people might be intimidated. It's another place to grow. So usually instead of just giving a talk, I let people make art. I set it up so they can make art. And you will not believe the reactions I get because everybody in this world thinks that we're out to nickel and diamond and they're going to have to pay for everything they get. And when I say, no, it's free. Really? Yeah, come on over. Here, I'm going to show you how to use these ink tense pencils on these postcards we're making. And the adults are into it as much as the little kids. And they'll, some of the times they'll sit there for a couple hours and work on things. Uh, so that's what I, I try and give to the people that come in, the public. Also, I guess one thing I've neglected to mention, which was really important, there would be no national parks if it weren't for artists. Artists are what brought the attention to these natural areas and made the Senate and Congress want to pass laws protecting them because the people in the East had no idea it was out West. Hmm. And when people like oh, I don't know, some of the fam- like Thomas Moran went back to Washington and had these huge paintings of Yellowstone, people thought, oh my gosh, and it makes people want to go and save those areas. And then what I give back to, again, to the park itself is caring for their message. It's more critical than it has ever been. And I can't stress that enough that we save our natural areas. I just got home from Yellowstone a few weeks ago and the trees, I've got to tell you, are very concerning to me. They're all looking stressed and they're turning brown. Now, what's going to happen if all the pine trees, you know, are stressed out and brown? We get all these wildfires coming through. So we can't wait any longer to work on this. So me coming on a program like yours and passing this along and me having a gallery exhibition that doesn't have horrible work about wildfires, but it gives people a positive message on why these things are worth saving. That is what I give back to the parks. Well, Sue, thank you so much for bringing your message to our audience. But, you know, as as I'm listening to this, it just reminds me that, first of all, we call our guest on the Quilting Arts Podcast, our artist in residence. And we've done that from our very first episode. And this is our 21st episode. So you are our 21st artist in residence. And I think about what you have given back to the quilting arts audience. And I'm talking about more than just the listeners to this podcast. You have given instruction on our TV show. You have expressed so many beautiful quilts that have that have been seen all over the world. And you are our cover girl in uh, for our quilting arts fall 2021 issue. And now you're also our artist in residence on the on the podcast. So you're you're continuing this message. And it is a gift to all art quilters and to everyone who is interested in art, basically. So thank you so much for being a wonderful ambassador for not only nature, but also for art quilting 
in the world. Well, I want to thank you because I've got to say Quilting Arts has been quite a gift to me, and I don't think I would even be here if it wasn't for that magazine. So thank you for that and for the opportunity to come on here and share the message or messages that I have. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Sue. You've given us so much to think about. Thank you. Well, that was an interesting conversation. I can certainly tell you, Susan, that I'm going to want to really think hard and long about what my goals are artistically and how I'm going to reach them. Because when I hear about what Sue King has done and, um, you know, really the methodical way that she's approached creating her art and finding opportunities, it's, it's really an inspiring thing to hear about. Yeah, she is such a go-getter, as my mom used to say. Be a go-getter. Um, be proactive and figure out what you want and go after it. And really, you know, if you're looking to to have opportunities like that, as she said, unless you get out and do them, unless you really work hard, they're not going to come to you. So you really do have to be methodical and search for them and find the right opportunities and apply. Yeah. And find your passion, find what you're really interested in. And I think for her, that combination of doing the research and really understanding whether it's the people or the animals or the plant life that's in that area and loving it and wanting to share it with other people and wanting to explain why it's important and why we need to save it. That kind of passion goes a long way for for Sue in getting her where she wants to go. There really is that intersection between art and the ideas that inspire it. That's true. So Sue, Susan, do you have a quote for us this week? Oh, of course I do. (laughs) This one is by Leonardo da Vinci. He said, It had long since come to my attention that people of accomplishment rarely sat back and let things happen to them. They went out and happened to things. So there you go. We've got to go out and we've got to happen to things. We've got to make stuff happen. I'm going to go out and do that right now. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I've loved talking to you. Nice talking to you, Susan, as well. And thank you for listening to the Quilting Arts Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. This podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. Our show notes with images, links, and descriptions and more are all available on quiltingdaily.com. Our producer today is Daisha Clay, and our web producer is Sarah Erickson. <laughs>